Amen. Good to see you all again this morning. And I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 3. And as you do that, uh, let's just bow our heads in prayer and give God thanks for the baptisms that we have witnessed and for all the good things that he has done. Let's pray. Father, we bow our head before you as we prepare to approach your word. And we thank you for your work of salvation. Thank you that you sent Christ into the world to die and to be raised from the dead. And thank you that you invite us to come to you as little children and to believe and to put our faith in all that you have promised and all that has been accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the joy of celebrating the salvation of these young people that have been baptized this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to guide and to lead them. May they grow in wisdom and in grace. And may you give their parents and their families and our church continued uh, resolve and perseverance and strength to continue to teach and to preach the truth of the gospel and your word. And so, Lord, we pray now as we come to the text that, Holy Spirit, you will open our hearts, that you will open our minds, that we will receive the word and that the word will dwell in us richly and transform us from one degree of glory to another as we seek to live our lives to magnify and glorify Jesus and for all that he has done for us. We love you, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. This morning, um, the message is the close of the new life, the close of the new life, and we're going to look at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint, against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by just thinking about clothes for just a minute. And think about what is the first thing that you do in a given morning. Well, I'm sure we get up, we brush our teeth, so on and so forth. But hopefully one of the things that you do is put on clothes. And usually that would mean putting on clothing for work or whatever activity that you will face in that given day. Many professions require specific uniforms or attire that we have to wear on a daily basis. If you play for a sports team, you must always dress for the game. And even if you don't have a required uniform or dress uh, for whatever occasion, usually we try to dress ourselves to fit whatever it is we're trying to represent. Your clothes do not determine who you are, but they distinguish you from everyone else. And I open with that illustration because for that reason, Paul, here in this passage, continues to employ the clothing analogy. And what happens when you get to verse 12 is he shifts to a positive angle regarding our new life in Christ. Previously, he stated that we must put off the old clothes, strip off the old clothes that went with our former identity, that we're to take those off and we are to get rid of them as we also put to death sin in our lives. So there is absolutely no doubt that Paul intends for us to make a a clear break from that old identity when we did not know Christ, when we were not Christians, when we were not saved. And he then tells this church of of new believers 
that they are to dress in new clothes, strip off the old, and now dress in the new clothes, the new garments brought to us through Christ in salvation. Now, I want to just out of the gate say three things quickly by way of introduction about these clothes, about what Paul's talking about here. First thing I want you to notice in the very beginning is that these clothes, the way he tells us to dress, and it's not literal clothing, by the way. He's telling us that our character, that this is what we are to look like as Christians, the way that we live our lives, this is what we're to look like. And so these clothes, these, this way of living, these clothes were perfectly worn by Christ. We need to say that in the very beginning. Without Jesus, we have nothing but rags of sin. In fact, Michael Reeves writes in his book, uh, Right with God, he writes, Christ is my righteousness. He is my status and my standing before God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the moment that a sinner believes the gospel... All of the righteousness of Jesus, or the perfect living of Jesus, the sinless character of Jesus, is counted for you. It's not that you live that or earn that, but that you are counted righteous because of Him. And we need to really have that established in our minds. Therefore, our righteousness before God, hear me, our righteousness before God is not based on our behavior our performance, our feelings, our, our, our righteousness is, it, 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 we, we do these things because our righteousness is based on Christ and his righteousness. It is because of Jesus that we should want to put on the things worn perfectly by him who won our salvation. So we need to establish that first. Another thing that I want you to know is that these qualities, these clothes, are bestowed by the Holy Spirit. These virtues that Paul mentions, put on compassionate hearts, put on um, patience, kindness, humility, and meekness, these, these virtues or these qualities of our, of our Savior are not naturally instinctive to us. They are fruits of the Spirit as the Spirit works in our lives. And so apart from the Spirit, these things don't matter. They're not going to earn you salvation. These things are a result of our salvation. And that's the the other thing that I want you to see in the beginning is that these clothes were worn perfectly by Christ for our salvation. They are bestowed upon us by the Holy Spirit once we become a Christian and we live our Christian lives. And the other thing I want you to know in the beginning is that the clothes are worn in covenant community with other believers. In fact, when he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, notice that it's, that he's addressing them in plurality. He's talking to the church. And so it is very important for us to state here that people who reject belonging to a local church and refuse to share their life with other believers cannot live the Christian life effectively. How do you do any of these things if you don't belong to a church? How do you do any things? If, how, how can I do any of these things that he's mentioned if I'm not committed to you in a covenant relationship through church membership? You can't. And so we need to really get that in the very beginning, that there are no Lone Ranger Christians. There is no Christian life in isolation apart from the church. We need each other. We need the local church. And that is why it is important for us to be together, to not neglect being together. Because it is here in these relationships where we actually practice putting on these qualities, these characteristics. And so with those things in mind, here's what Paul wants us to walk away with in these verses. Put on the new clothes of your new life in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've repented of your sin and you've placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the basis of your salvation alone, then pursue these things. Put on these things. Walk in Christ's likeness. Become 
what you are in Christ. So how do we do that? What what do we see here about these new clothes that will help us put them on as we live our new life in Christ? Well, there there are five things that I want to walk you through here that you'll notice in the text about these clothes. The first thing will be the cause of the, the cause for the new clothes, and then we'll talk about the command, and then we'll see the consequence. We'll see the crown of new clothes, and then we'll look at the community in new clothes. And if you didn't get all that, that's okay. We're going to go through that step by step. So let's look at the first thing in the text. One, we see the cause in verse 12, and look at, the, look at what it says. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So you can't get to the command until you look at the cause for the command. Why should we put on these things? Notice how Paul reminds them who they are in Christ. He states their identity. Who we are is the motivation for how we live. Who you are drives what you do. In other words, like I said a moment ago, become who you are in Christ. That's the thrust of these verses. Well, what does he say about our identity? There are three things he says here. We're chosen by God, holy, beloved. Now just think about that. Paul wants these new believers to know their identity. He doesn't want them to suffer from any crisis in identity in terms of who they are as Christians. And so he says, listen, put on you got you people, you church, you who are the chosen ones of God. And so that's the first thing you see. We are, the, we are chosen by God. One of the things that you learn as a Christian is that the, the longer you live as a Christian is that you didn't choose him, he chose you. He chose you and me to be saved. If you're saved, it is not because of your wisdom, of your intellect, of your choice. It is because of him and the power of his grace. This choice to save any of us was not because he saw something good in us or lovable about us, but it's all because of his grace. And he's already established that earlier in the letter. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he says, and he, that is Christ, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Jesus made this clear to his own disciples. When he told them in John 15, do you remember when he's speaking to them, he's getting near the end of his earthly life and ministry before he goes to the cross and dies and then is raised from the dead? And what does he tell the disciples? He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you from out of the world. It is clear that what Paul does here is reminds us of God's sovereign activity in our salvation. And because of that, we get to receive a title that was once given to Israel. And now that title applies to every believer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been chosen by God. We are God's chosen people. That doesn't inflate pride. In fact, that should humble us. Because he chose us not because we're great, not because we're good, but he chose us just because he is good and gracious. And so we are God's chosen ones. And the the language there is reflective of Deuteronomy 7 when he speaks that when the Lord speaks about Israel. But what else does he say? We are holy. We are, that word holy means to be set apart. He calls the church holy. And like Israel, God has called us to himself and he has set us apart from, for himself. Again, this is a holiness that comes from his grace. He's not calling them holy because they brought good to the table. He calls them holy because he's made them holy. He has set them apart. He has robed us in Christ's righteousness. And therefore, we are his holy people, his set-apart people that have been called to salvation. But there's one other word here that also would have been used to describe Israel. Do you see it? He says, as God's chosen ones, holy, set apart, 
and beloved. We are set apart by God, but we are loved by God. I mean, the, 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 it is a term of affection and endearment. It, is, it means that he has set his love upon us. It's like a father referring to his child, his son, or my daughter. There's an endearment there. There's an affection there. There's a, there's a familial uh, intimacy that's there. He has set his affection upon us. He has loved us. And so it means that he loves his church and that he could not love us any more than he loves us right now in Christ and the work of the gospel. And so all the privileges and blessings of salvation are ours because he loves us. Now think about how that works in terms of fueling obedience. And before we come to the command, we have to first understand our identity. That is our identity. Again, an identity that is given to us in salvation. And if we don't get this, then, then the command becomes moralistic. I gotta be more compassionate. I gotta be more humble. I gotta be this and I gotta be that. And then what we get in our minds is we think that by doing these things that we're earning favor. No, that's not it at all. It's the opposite. We do these things because God in His favor has chosen us in salvation in Christ. He set us apart by saving us by His grace and He has loved us by sending His Son to die on the cross, to be buried in the ground, and to be raised from the dead. And that should be the motivation for us to live our lives in a holy manner, pleasing unto Him. Put on these things. Why? Because you belong to God. Because you're a child of the King. Because you've been saved by His grace. That's the driving motivation. And it's so important, again, even if it sounds repetitive, to establish that. Otherwise, what happens is the gospel ends up getting washed out, and we end up with moralism, feeling like we have to live up to something rather than to be living in something. And so let me just ask you, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you need to be reminded this morning, if you're a believer, that these things are said about you as his child, as part of his church. And if you're here today and you say, well, I don't feel like I belong. I don't, I don't know that I'm loved. Well, then come to the cross and repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and receive his salvation. And then the banner over you will be that you are his chosen one, that you have been loved and that you have been set apart because you have received his salvation. But now that leads us to the command. Now look at the command. Put on what? What do we put on? What are the clothes? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Five virtues. And if you notice the imperative, it is again a command. And so the command put on is a present imperative. What that means is it's not just put on once. It's put on again and again and again and keep putting these things on, right? You're not going to wake up tomorrow and wear the same clothes to the end of the week. You might, but you'll probably be told to go sleep outside each night at some point. But you see, it's put on. Keep putting on. Just like killing sin in your life and putting away sinful attitudes and practices never ends, you and I are to always be putting on these qualities that were perfectly demonstrated in Jesus. You don't just, and so the, the, in the Christian life, the question is, am I going to put on these things daily in my relationship with fellow believers and in my life that I'm living? So what are these things? First, compassionate hearts. And they're just on the screen right there, compassionate hearts. What does that mean? Well, the reason you have the word heart is because we understand here that Paul is speaking to our deepest level, the heart, the seat of our emotions, and what he means by compassionate hearts is that we, we should put on a sensitivity towards the needs and sorrows of others. Another way to say this is it is a merciful compassion. 
There was a man, a missionary by the name of Paul Brand, who was a medical missionary to India. And he was ministering to, he was ministering to people that had leprosy. And he had this one appointment that he held, and he, as he was meeting with this gentleman who had leprosy, he reached out and he touched the patient to reassure him that it would be okay and that treatment was possible. Immediately when he touched the patient, tears began to fall down from the man's face. And as he began to wept, the doctor was confused and wondered why. And one of his assistants said and explained to him, the reason why he's crying is because you touched him. And no one has ever done that, has done that for years since his diagnosis. They're tears of joy. And so that's a reminder to us, really, of what happened with Jesus. Do you remember? If you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 41, do you remember when the leper came to him? And do you know what Jesus did? You know what the text says in Mark chapter 1, verse 41? When Jesus looked at the leper, the text says that he was moved with compassion. From the depth of his heart, there was a sensitivity to the man. Do you know what the Lord did? The Son of God did this. The Scripture says that he reached out and he touched him. Before he healed him, he touched him, demonstrating not only his divine power as the Son of God, but his very heart as the Son of God, moved with compassion. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 says that when the multitudes were brought to Jesus, the sick and the afflicted and the diseased and those that were burdened with sin and all sorts of things. You know what the Bible says? That Jesus was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. Do you know why? Because he was able to understand the predicament of human beings more than they were able to. It wasn't just that he felt sorry for their physical circumstances, but he was broken for all that sin had brought into the world. All the death, all the disease, all the evil, all the rebellion. You see that in, Ma- in Luke, John chapter 11 when Lazar- he, get- he arrives at Lazarus' tomb and he sees the unbelief of the people. He sees the grieving, the mourning. He sees everything that is around him. And what is the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Again, not just that he wept in order to sympathize, but he wept because he understood the plight of man. We, as believers, put on compassionate heart because we understand what is what has happened in our world to bring all of the destruction and all of the death. It is sin. And so for us to be moved with compassion and to put on compassionate hearts, it's not just to feel sorry for what people are going through. But it is to be moved with gospel compassion because we have the only answer and only hope that can lead people to eternal salvation. But it also means just to simply be sensitive to where people are and what people are going through and where brokenness enters into their life. Listen, the world is cruel today as it was then. If you lived in the ancient world, the weakest had no rights. The infants, the elderly, the sick, the mentally ill, the disabled, no rights. There were no rights in the ancient world. And here you have the message of the gospel. It's not not might makes right, but instead compassionate hearts. It brings a sympathy and tenderness of heart to care for the unborn, to minister to the sick, to love the aging, to embrace the widow, to take in the orphan. And in the church, we especially should be able to share deeply in the joys and the sorrows of life. That's why we weep together. And that's why we rejoice together. Because we have a gospel unity that gives us compassionate hearts. And that should overflow. But there's a second quality here, kindness. The second article of clothing. Look what he says. Put on kindness. What does he mean by kindness? Well, it is a reflection of God's character. God is good and he's kind. We see in the Old Testament prophets and the Psalms that he is ready to help the weak. He is constant in his mercy. This is his disposition towards sinners. It doesn't undercut his wrath. Neither does it compromise his holiness because he is perfect in all of it. But in upholding one, we should not neglect the the other. 
And especially we Christians as the church, we should recognize that it is because of the kindness of the Lord that we are saved. In fact, that's what Paul says to Romans, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It is the riches of His kindness that have led us to repentance. That God would love me. That God would save me. That God would reach out and touch me with His saving grace is the miracle of conversion. Paul tells Titus, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and our Savior appeared, He saved us. Do you hear the tenderness of those words? Goodness and kindness. Again, this this is the, the magnitude of the gospel. That he reached out and he saved us from our sins. Not because of works that we have done. But according to his own mercy. So church, God has been kind to us. And therefore, we should be kind. Are you lovingly kind? Are you lovingly kind because of the gospel? It is a reminder to us that we should be inviting. We should be welcoming a great many today. Even those in gospel ministry need to be reminded that there's nothing holy about being harsh. Nothing holy about being harsh. Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple with a whip, but he also wept over Jerusalem. And said with tears, how long I would, how often I would have gathered you into my arms like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And so, while there are occasions where the whip must be taken, may it not be taken without hearts that have wept over those that are broken and lost and in need of salvation. He was able to weep over the unbelief of the city. It reminds me in Lord of the Rings when Frodo is, if you're familiar with the story of Lord of the Rings, and Frodo is frustrated because he has the ring, and the ring has brought all sorts of evil into Middle Earth, and he's speaking to Gandalf, and he tells Gandalf, he says, it is a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance, Gollum the evil creature that had possessed the ring. And Gandalf says, pity, it's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it for good or evil before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. And it's just an illustrative reminder of the importance of mercy and the importance of grace And the importance of understanding kindness. That sometimes we're too quick to issue out judgment. When we should be displaying mercy and grace towards those that need it. What if God had not been kind to you? What if God had not been kind to you? What if God had not been kind to Paul? The persecutor of the church. Is it not the risen Lord who stood on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Wasn't that an extension of his kindness? What if God had not been kind to Luther and had saved him by his grace? Well, I think it's just a reminder again, the importance of putting these things on. Kindness, compassionate hearts. Third thing, quickly, humility. The word humility is lowliness. It means not considering yourself something. But really nothing. When he says put on humility, he means downsizing your own significance and worth. It's the opposite of pride and haughtiness. In fact, Jesus perfectly embodied this in his total selflessness that led him to be obedient even to the death of the cross. That's how far he humbled himself. And in Philippians, Paul tells us that we are not to think of ourselves as more highly or more significant than others. And if you read into Philippians chapter 3, do you know what Paul says? He goes on to renounce all the things that potentially cause him to be prideful and boastful. And if you go to Philippians 3, you'll see it. He, 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 he renounces his upbringing, even his ethnicity, even his education, His morality, his zeal. He renounces all of it. He says all of it is nothing. 
Because none of it makes me righteous. I have no boast before God. My only boast is Christ. My only hope is the gospel. And so Paul, he, he demonstrates to us in Christ that humility, but then presents himself and says, you know, above all, when we are humble, we renounce those things that cause us to puff up with pride. And only when we are truly humbled can we behold the greatness of God. Only when we're truly humbled and we understand who we are in light of God in all of his glory, only then can we behold his greatness and his glory and experience even a deeper, even a deeper understanding of his grace and then let that overflow towards others. And so humility goes with meekness. The fourth thing that he gives is meekness. This next article is also translated gentleness. Paul uses the word gentleness or meekness eight times in the New Testament. In, Old, in the Old Testament, Israel, those who did not have land or property, property were often cheated and taken advantage of. And so meekness is the opposite of what we said a moment ago, might makes right. Meekness is the opposite of the Darwinian idea of the strong overpower the weak. It flips that. Meekness is the proper use of one's authority or power or position for the good of others and as Christians for the gospel good of others. We're more concerned about people coming to a saving knowledge of Christ than we are anything else, or at least we should be. And so we need more gentle spiritedness, spiritedness instead of mean-spiritedness in our words and attitudes. And I'll be the first to put myself up on that line. How easy it is for me to come across mean or, and rather than meek and kind. And so in my interactions. And so we're reminded here of meekness. That we use where we are in life to bring others to an understanding of the grace of God. Put this quality on. Last quality quickly is patience. The last article means not getting angry with others. And I know there's no one in here that would struggle with that. It means enduring wrong without seeking vengeance or retaliation. Giving people space and time and trust in the Spirit's work in the heart of others. Patience. Demonstrating a patience as God has been patient with us. So all of these things. All of these things perfectly demonstrated in the life of Jesus. And all of these things only possible in our lives by the work of the Spirit. In other words, as we grow, as we put these things on, we want to become more like these qualities. These are the qualities that should characterize gospel people. Now I realize I often will get the pushback and even can think it myself. Well, you know, I'm just not naturally like any of this. Exactly. Exactly. We're not naturally like any of these things. And so to be clothed in these things requires us to put them on in the power of the Holy Spirit as we gaze upon Christ, our perfect Savior, and say, Lord, make me more like you. I'll never be you. I can never be fully like you. But make me like you so that the gospel will overflow into the relationships that I have and with your people and with others. And so look at that list and ask yourself this question. What gospel virtues do you need to put on? Well, I mean, we would all say all five of them. But remember what I said a minute ago? It's put on and keep putting them on. And that's how that goes, right? I mean, it's, it's progress and then it's regress and then it's progress and so we look at that list and say, Lord, make me more like this in this area, in this relationship, in this situation. And above all, make me that way as I go out and I'm a witness to others and spread your gospel. Third thing, the consequence. What's the result? Well, Paul moves to verse 13 and look what he says. Paul says, okay, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you so also must you forgive. 
And so Paul actually takes these qualities and says, hey, here's how this plays out in like real-time relationship. So we put these virtues on by the power of the Spirit, and the consequences are, or the results are twofold. One, we forbear with one another, or we forbear one another. And then the second thing is, we forgive each other. Well, let's look at each of those thoughts. So, and, and, and again, look at it, bearing with one another. In other words, these qualities put on plays itself out in our relationships this way. Bearing with one another. Again, in the King James, it will have the word forbearance. To forbear is to endure, to hold out, to put it simple, to put up with. That's what it means. It means that I'm quite content, or I need to be content being in an imperfect church. And I need to be aware that you might offend me. I'll reverse it. I might offend you. I may, hurt, I may hurt you, right? We will offend each other. We will hurt each other. We will fail each other. We will disappoint each other. We will hold each other up to expectations we should not be holding up each other to. And you know, if we're honest, if I'm honest, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware. I may even neglect, we may even neglect each other's love languages. That's sometimes thrown out there. I know that's weird, but anyway. Point, point that I'm getting at is, is that we are here because of the gospel. And so the gospel reminds us that we're sinners sharing life together. And, and, and you know, think of it this way. Like in my home, I love all of my children. But I have had to learn to love them all differently. Because each one of them comes with unique challenges and learning curves and difficulties. And, I, I, and, and, and in fact, I've, I've often told our kids that God gave us a child with special needs to teach us something wonderful about the gospel. Because there have been plenty of times in the stresses of life that it's just flat hard to love. If loving us is not difficult for God, then how much more should we learn how to forbear and love those who are most difficult to us? And that leads us to a second observation. We forbear, we put up. We don't throw in the towel. We forgive each other. Now notice the text. Forgive one another. And what this means is this. Our disposition toward one another should always be readiness to forgive and reconcile. That should be the disposition. But we've got to bring Scripture to bear upon Scripture here. This does not mean that we just run around handing out forgiveness cards. That's not what that means. Not at all. Who does God forgive? He forgives those that repent. That's who he forgives. He forgives the repentant. Luke chapter 17. I'll put this on the screen. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And what often we look at is just forgive, 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 but we neglect repent, repent, repent. Now how do we balance this out? Well, until there is confession and repentance, until there is a recognition of wrong and responsibility for sin, there cannot be forgiveness and reconciliation. However, there must always be a readiness, a disposition to forgive. You know why? Because that's what guards our hearts from being eaten up with bitterness. It guards our hearts from being overtaken by hatred. We have, to, we have to recognize that, that God calls us to that disposition. We see that sometimes displayed. I remember in South, when, when the shooting took place on a Wednesday night in South Carolina, and there was a gunman motivated by racism, walked in to a predominantly, um, a predominantly African-American church and walked into a Wednesday night Bible study and, and basically slaughtered seven people. It was horrific. 
But I'll never forget one of the family members, was, I think it was the son, it was a close relative to one of the victims who stood and, I mean, just openly and plainly said that I stand ready to forgive the offender, the one who did this, because of what Christ has forgiven me of. He didn't slap a forgiveness card, but he stood overflowing with the disposition of forgiveness because what he would want to see is that person repent of that sin and then come and seek forgiveness. Very important that we understand this. Otherwise, there is an imbalance on either side. And the reason we forgive, why should we have a disposition of forgiveness? Well, look at the text. Look what he says. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against you or commits an offense against one another, forgiving each other, and again, bringing another scripture that would mean coming to one another with repentant heart, and then on that repentance there be being true forgiveness and reconciliation. Why? Look at it. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. In other words, when we come to God and we repent, all of God's wrath towards our sin was taken upon Jesus at that cross. And likewise, any wrath, that bitterness that I I begin to swell up with, then when forgiveness takes place, then like what Christ it, because of what Christ did on that cross, I'm able to forgive. And so God in Christ has forgiven us. Therefore, we must grant forgiveness when we see others repent. Let us be like the prodigal's father standing ready to receive rather than ready to reject. That's the point. And so the truth applied is this. Do we exhibit forbearance with each other? Are we always quick to just abandon, to leave, to jump ship, to say, you know, I'm going to find a more perfect person or people or church or whatever? And are we marked by forgiveness toward each other? In a biblical pattern. That leads me to the fourth thing, the crown. The crown of the new clothes. And look what he says. So he circles back around. In verse 14, he says, And above all these, all these other qualities that demonstrate themselves in these, in forgiveness and and in forbearance, he says, he says, the crown of it all is love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul repeats the command, put on above all and keep putting on love the crowning piece of the new clothing we have in christ we love each other because christ loved us and the priority of love in the christian is given it is the crown of all the virtues of all the qualities of christ likeness it is the fact that he loves henry scoogle puritan who wrote the life of god and soul of man writes this Love is the most valuable thing we can bestow, and by giving it, we do, in effect, give all that we have. This is because love is a kind of self-abandonment. It is like a voluntary death. We die to self and think only of the one we love. Love is unselfish by its very nature. It cares for nothing but how to please and gratify the one that is beloved. What a great definition of love. Totally contrary to our culture's understanding of love, where really our culture's understanding of love is, is, self, is self-gratifying. We love because of what it gets us. Gospel love is love that gives and gives selflessly and freely. And it must be the priority of the Christian. No other article Paul mentions has any meaning unless it flows from the fountain of love that springs from the gospel of grace and the cross upon which Christ died and the tomb from which he was raised. It flows, all these other qualities flow from a love of God and a love for neighbor born out of the gospel. The gospel makes us a loving people. It makes us a loving people. Schugel again states that love delivers, and think about it, this is good, love delivers us from the opposite. Malice, hatred, malice, hatred, envy, all those sins that Paul mentions earlier, slander, obscene talk, wrath, anger, 
the love that flows from the gospel delivers us from those things. Above all, love makes us sweet, kind, and self-forgetful. Did you hear that? Self-forgetful. Gospel love will make you forget about yourself. And in that, you will find the joy of living the Christian life. No one displayed that better than the Lord Jesus Christ, who forfeited all of his rights and completely in total selflessness purchased our salvation. But notice the priority of love in the Christian becomes the power of love in the church. The power of love in the church. And I'm not talking about Huey Lewis and the news, in case that's what you're thinking. Some of you didn't. I just addressed it. The power of love in the church is the gospel at work in the church. The power of true biblical love is that it binds us together in the church in harmony. Not in perfection, but in harmony. It holds everything together. And sometimes in that harmony, there are instruments that get out of tune and they need to be brought back into tune. But the point is that there's a harmony, there's a unity. And the scripture says here that it binds everything together in perfect harmony. It holds everything together like a belt holding clothes on. And what happens in the life of the church, listen, is that the church then becomes a gracious, forgiving, beautiful company of gospel people. All the ugliness from the ruinous fall is dispelled because of the love that the unity of the gospel brings into the church. So the question we should ask is, are we as a church continually being marked and united by gospel love? And that leads me to the last thing. What does that look like? I love the way verse 15 brings us to the community and the new clothes. So you kind of zero out. Look at verse 15. And I'll be quick. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed are called in one body, and be thankful. So when all of this happens, when when the new clothes are being put on, what what does the community look like if we zero out, or or, or we, we, we we, we scale back and we look at the church? We will be ruled by peace. There will be peace, not war with one another, unified in the body. The peace is that which was won at the cross through Christ's blood. We will have true fellowship built on the most important uniting reality. Do you know what brings us together? It's not because we all raise our kids the same way. It's not because we like the same music. It's not because we have all the same interests. It's not because we share the same hobbies. Do you know why we're together as a church? Because of the gospel. That's why. And the gospel is what brings, what what pours over into our lives, love in our relationships with one another. And then what happens is peace acts like an umpire. It rules. And that's, that's, that's the intended meaning of that. That, the, that peace, that peace will determine the outcome of the church. But when we're not putting these things on, and when love is not defining us, then what happens is there's war and conflict, and there's disunity, and there's all sorts of things. But here, I love what Paul says at the very end of it. And it's just kind of like, it almost sounds like a parent, right? Just be thankful. Just be thankful. Look that way. Just be thankful. I love the way Paul says that. Practice thankfulness. Thank God that we're together because of the gospel. Be thankful that God saved a people and brought them together at Chillicothe Baptist Church. Practice thankfulness for the church, for salvation, for people. And think of how that flows into our own body. It's something we have to be intentional about. God, thank you for the church that you've saved and called together. Thank you that I'm a part of that church. Thank you for the people you've placed in my life. 
Thank you for the privilege of being able to serve together, to weep together, to rejoice together. Thank you for the joy of being able to share life and not live it alone. Thank you that we have people with whom we can practice these things. Thank you for the hard people, the difficult people, the tough people. Thank you for all of it. Thank you for what he's done here. And I'll just say this personally. And I've said it before and I'll continue to say it. Not because I'm still, we just crossed six months here. But we are thankful to be here at this church. We are thankful for you. We mention you in our prayers. That we're thankful for this church, for the loving fellowship, for the passion for the gospel, for those who teach and serve, for the opportunities we've already had to grow together and now to be reaching out and what we did on Good Friday together and taking the gospel and celebrating Christ in the community and so many of you just reaching out to friends and neighbors and taking the cards that were printed and, and all the efforts that the pastors uh, and, that put before you, you taking that and you running with that, may that overflow flow and love towards other and zeal to reach people with the gospel and may we continue to grow as a fellowship that's the community in new clothes and that leads me to this conclusion put on the lord jesus christ that's what paul says in essence put on the lord jesus christ make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires seek to be like him who was everything that he was so that you could be saved. Put on the clothes of your new life. What might those be? Are you a believer this morning? And has Christ become your identity? If you're not, would you come and receive Christ as Savior and Lord and repent and believe on him and become part of this body? And if you are a believer, will you put on the clothes of the new life in Christ? Whatever your need might be, that invitation is to all of us. And so we're going to stand. Our worship team's going to come and lead us. And we're going to extend that invitation for us to respond in worship. Let's bow and let's pray. Let's give God thanks and let us ask the Spirit to work in our hearts as to how we should respond to his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace in the gospel. Thank you for the new life that you give to every believer that we have been raised to walk in the newness of life. We're dead to our sin because of Christ's finished work on the cross. If there's one person here that's not saved, may today they be saved. May today they believe. And for every one of us, may we seek you. Lord, what do I need to put on today? What do I need to put on in any of these characteristics or qualities? And may you make us as your church a loving people, a thankful people, a people ruled by the peace that has come to us in the gospel. And may you help us to love, to endure with patience, gentleness, humility, compassion, forbearance, and forgiveness as all of that has been displayed to us in Christ and his name. Amen.